rolling. What's happening, y'all? Andy and Zach, back at the bottom. Back at the fat the bottom. Big old fat bottom. On a dreary, rainy Monday afternoon here in Nashville. It's been very lousy the last, like, well, we'll get around to how, like, what we did this weekend. <laughs> but the weather has been lousy for like four days. Yeah, we're in the middle of quite the system. Quite the front, whatever it is. It's been raining for two days. It's going to rain for two more days. And we are under a flash flood warning until 7. Sure enough. I just saw the news for that. So, yeah. cool. Great. It's always raining in this town. <laughs> it's always raining in this town. As they say. So, mm. we had a big weekend. We did. We did. So, I guess our listeners will hear this episode after Dr. Jesse Riley's episode. Correct. So, our good buddy, Dr. Jesse Riley, was in town this weekend for a wedding on Sunday. So, we got to entertain him Friday and Saturday. We had a, you might say, a lovely day. We dove into a lovely day. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I meant to play that song at some point over the course of the night, and then I forgot. Oh, yeah. I was just too immersed in the in the the broing out. Yeah, you were present to the moment. Yeah. Yeah, so we talked about Jesse, obviously, a little bit on his episode. But, yeah, Jesse was really the catalyst for Andy and I getting together. Uh, we were both acquaintances of his when he was living in Nashville. And we went to what we went to denver and then we were also also both went on his uh bachelor party trip yes and that's kind of where we initially got to know each other wait the i think the bachelor party trip was for first no second what came first it must have been the bachelor trip because we went to visit after they had been married that's right yeah so the first time we got to like spend a lot of time together was Driving down in the van with Jason. Oh yeah, down to Gulf Shores for Hangout Fest. Yeah, that was, that was fun. A really good time. We gotta do that again. I'm down. And then Denver was a really good time. We gotta do that again. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready. So yes, yeah, so all that to say, uh, Jesse is kind of the the third wheel of our little operation. Who's of our little tripod? Of our little tripod. He's the leg of the tripod. Yeah. A musketeer, if you will. Yeah, he's just he's just holding it down any number of hundreds or thousands of miles away in Denver. So. At least hundreds of thousands of miles. Hun- hundreds or thousands. <laughs> I was like, no, buddy, we need to talk about... Jesse does not live on the moon. <laughs> Which, by the way, I think... He might as well, because he's so far away. Right, right. <laughs> I think I looked at... I looked this up. If you were to wager a guess, how far away do you think the moon is? Uh, pretty far. If you were to wager a guess, 180,000 miles. Okay, I could be wrong because I I googled this two years ago, but it just came back to me because I guessed around the same thing. I think I guessed around 100,000 miles. And again, I could be wrong. I believe it's 400,000 miles away. Wow. It's pretty far. Now, I don't I don't want to um, I don't want to give out fake news or fake science on this podcast, so I'm just going to do- I'm going to fact my check right. Fact check myself fact right my now. Fact my check. I'm going to fact well, my I'm check. Gonna, I'm going to fact you some factoids. Hey Siri. How far away is the moon? The average distance between Earth and the moon is 238,856 miles. So I was completely wrong in my recollection. So it's near 240-ish thousand miles. 240. So half of what I just said. That's fine. I was, I was a little closer. You're right. All right. So did you know? You did know this, that the moon was part of Earth at one point. Well, we theorized that the moon was part of Earth at one point, right? You know that. No, I did not know that. You're joking, right? Hmm. No. Oh, yeah, there's a theory that long, long, long time ago... Wait, was it a big asteroid and a Smacked. piece broke off? Yep. I think I... Okay. So there's sounds that. familiar. So then, as it coalesced and cooled, it was much, much closer to the planet at one point in time. And then every year we lose the moon by about something like an inch. 
every year. So we're losing it. And we're tidally locked, which means that that's why you see the same face of the moon all the time. Right, right. So we're tidally locked with it. The other part to all that is there's good speculation and, and good data to support that half the reason that we even have life on this planet is because of the moon. Mm. And the planet, Earth, used to spin much faster. We used to have like 12-hour days as opposed to 24-hour days. And the tidal friction caused by the moon has slowed down the rotation of the planet uh. over eons, billions of years. I think they said the Earth is 4.3 billion years old, mm. which makes the moon roughly 4.3 billion years old. Wow. Pretty neat, right? Wow. Here, everyone thought that they were going to talk, we were, they were going to hear about fitness. This is the moon episode. And this is the moon. <laughs> the moon episode. Wow. That's just, put that as another notch in the belt of miraculous things that all have to come together to create life on Earth. Because life started in the oceans. Sure. Did you also know that 99.9% of all species that have ever roamed this planet are extinct? I, I think I heard that somewhere. You heard it but probably yeah. from me. I probably told you the other probably. day. Probably. You know, <laughs> which is why... Uh, well, I don't want to make a callous joke, so we'll, so we'll, we'll move on. Okay. It's but, a <laughs> we, we should stay in our wheelhouse. <laughs> right. I don't know how much farther I can go without making like a, uh, in some sort of joke that's going to be offensive to somebody. But, um, All fair. Just pocket it for later. Yeah. Yeah. But hey, God bless the moon. Without it, where would we be? Spinning real fast. I was gonna say, hanging out with get, dinosaurs. I don't we might know. get thrown <laughs> off our planet without the moon. Okay, so <laughs> I like how I like how we went from Jesse Riley to the moon. Yeah, it's, in, a, good, it's a good start in seven minutes flat. It's a good start to this Monday. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so we had a great time with Jesse. Um, he was in town, like I mentioned, for um, another old friend's wedding. And uh, he'll actually be back here in just a little bit for the Rolling Stones concert. That I will not be attending because it would just be lost on me. I'm you're not, not you're not as big of a dad rock guy Is that as what that's me called? and Jesse are. Classic rock, yeah, yacht yeah, rock, dad yeah. rock. Yeah, it's yeah. not really my jam. Yeah, I know I know a couple of their, their songs, but you probably actually know more than a couple. But yeah, yeah, that's yeah. fair. Um, yeah, and then the Rolling Stones um, drummer passed away a few weeks ago. Charlie Watts. Rest in peace. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, Charlie Watts was kind of known as the quiet guy in the group. He, I think, was... Uh, I think he was schooled as a jazz drummer. So he has a very kind of laid-back, kind of subtle playing style. Hmm. Um, which was, you know, an integral part of the Stones sound. So as far as I know, he was the original drummer. Hmm. So I'm not a huge Stones fanatic, but I do believe that Mick and Keith and Charlie were, were the original members who obviously lasted as long as, as they have. So, they so Stones had a um, an iconic uh, guitar player alongside Keith Richards, who passed away, I think, in the '70s. And I think they've rotated through some bass players over the course of time. So, Charlie, Keith, and Mick, I think, were like the core three dudes. I've always wondered, like, how many members of an original band should you have? in order to maintain the band's name. Well, obviously... And I have a couple examples that I'm going to ask you about. Oh, sure. That's, that's been a hot topic over the years. Okay. For sure. Like, for example, Alice in Chains. Mm-hmm. I think a lead singer and a guitarist OD'd way back in, like, the mid-'90s. Well, the singer, um, whose name is escaping me, um, shoot. 
I'd have to look it up. But I do like Alice in Chains. Yeah. Well, so uh, so the singer did pass away in like the mid nineties from, an, from an overdose. Now I will say this: I have listened to the quote unquote new Alice in Chains music. And I will say that the singer that they have now, or I don't know if they're still active, is both similar enough to do justice to the old material mm. and different enough that he brings a new sound. As a guitar player, I can tell you that Jerry Cantrell, who's the lead guitar player of Alice in Chains, is like, for me, like the big draw. Okay. Is I mean, he original to the group? Yes. Okay. Yes. He's he started. Lane Stanley is the name of the Lane Stanley. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Is the name of the original. Now, granted, Lane Stanley has an all-time iconic rock and roll voice, hmm. and it is a shame that he passed away. So, is it technically the same? Mm, I would still. I don't know. That's tough. It's tough because, and I don't want to take this too far off the rails. It's tough because my hands-down favorite band is ACDC. And they, their career is almost bifurcated by the passing away of their original singer and achieving success with their new one. Hmm. See, I don't, I don't know ACDC that well. I know, I know their songs. I could tell if there's an ACDC song on, but I couldn't tell you who the singer was. Sure. So, two other examples. We don't have to go down this rabbit hole, but two other examples would be Blink-182. Mm. Now, the lead singer didn't die, but Mark Hoppus is not part of, no, Tom, excuse me, Mark and Travis are still in the band. Um, uh, uh, Tom is not. And the new lead singer, whose name escapes me right now, is not a good vocalist at mm. all. Is objectively bad. Oh. But you have two-thirds <laughs> of the members, so there's that. And then the other one would be Static X. Wayne Static, the lead singer, very iconic look. And right, the spiked hair, right? Big spiked hair. He died a few years ago, and mm. there's speculation. And also, it's weird because the new lead singer wears a Wayne Static like face mask. Oh, it's kind of yeah, it's kind of weird. Now mm. there's speculation that the lead singer for the new Static X is the lead singer of Dope, who often. Tours, oh. they often tour oh, together, so okay. it would make sense, but no one knows for sure. Oh, so it's a mystery. So it's apparently a mystery. Oh, Everyone fairly has it figured out that it is lead singer of Dope. That's kind of cool. But, but at the same time, when this when Wayne Static and Static X is missing the guy, yeah, it, yeah, it's it is weird. It is weird, and it's. And I love Static a, X. It's a fine line. And yeah. I love Alice in Chains, and I love Blink-182, but... Well, I mean, there's so many examples. I mean, you know, we had we had a Guns N' Roses at a certain point in time that was just Axl Rose. And oh. none of the other members. And then what about um, Van Halen? So Van Halen has gone through few different singers but Van Halen is another interesting example of a band that achieved success with their original singer yeah. and then continued to achieve success with um, Sammy Hagar mm. and then they reconvened with David Lee Roth in somewhat recent history and toured and then their bass player kind of came and went a few times so I've actually seen Van Halen with Sammy Hagar and David Lee Roth and Michael Anthony, the original bass player, and Wolfgang, which is Eddie Van Halen's son. And of course, Eddie Van Halen died, was it earlier this year? So, you talk about like the, one of the greatest all-time guitar players who led one of the greatest all-time rock bands, whose last name was the name of the band. That's an obvious example of a band that can never right. <laughs> exist anymore. Um, the other example would be like Almond Brothers. Hmm. Uh, because the Almond Brothers were Dwayne, the guitar player, and how oh, how can I not think of his name? Dwayne and 
Mm, can't think of the... Oh, Greg. Greg Allman played keys and sang. So Dwayne Allman passed away in like the 70s and the band has gone on and on and on and on mm. without him and has had some amazing guitar players fill his shoes. And then, of course, just last year, maybe the year before, Greg Allman died. So now, absolutely, the Allman brothers are no more, but we, we, we've digressed. I was going to say, and then the last example would be, uh, what was the one with the, the half the, the band died in a, a plane crash? Oh, Leonard Skinner. Leonard Skinner. That's a, that's, a fa- that's a great example. That's a great example. Yeah. So, all yeah. right. As far as I'm concerned, yeah, as far as I'm concerned the quote-unquote second iteration was like a tribute. Okay. Yeah. All right. I think we've digressed enough. We'll have to come out with a new podcast or a different podcast about rock music. Yeah. (laughs) uh, A music critique podcast. Other random interests of Zach and Andy. There you go. (laughs) I'll talk about Toyotas. There you go. I'll talk about dad rock. Okay. Perfect. Next podcast. Uh, so, we're going to deconstruct the deadlift today. Oh, oh, there's our title right there. There you go. Great Deconstructing alliteration. the deadlift. Yeah. So, we broke down the squat. A couple episodes ago. A couple episodes ago. So, we figured that we would tackle the deadlift. So, the deadlift being kind of what I would consider the lower body complement to the squat. If the squats, let's say... Let's say the goal of the squat pattern is hip depth. We could say like the goal of the deadlift is hip hinge. I would say almost hip horizontal displacement. Horizontal displacement. The, ver- the squat would be vertical displacement of the hips. And the uh, deadlift or the hip hinge would be horizontal displacement of the hips. Sure enough. Did, did I say that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Right. Down versus back. Correct. And and that's the one thing that, like, any hinge pattern that I'm teaching people, I just tell them, like, imagine your hips are on a drawer system, like, pushing forward and backwards. Mm. Um, we, can, we can dive into the details about all that. Like, the so the compensation patterns and the things that people typically do or want to do or, or things that we see, but very basically, hip displacement is horizontal with the deadlift versus vertical with the squat. Right. And then, I guess, in terms of, like, what muscles am I working uh, with the squat? And somebody on this podcast is probably going to be like, mm, actually, but I would argue that the squat is a predominantly quad-dominant exercise unless you get below par- hips below parallel, in which case glutes kick in. Hamstrings do not. I won't buy into that, really. Because they're shortening. It's hip flexion and knee flexion at the same time. Anyway, we can. that's a tangent. But quad dominant, and then the deadlift would be a hamstring glute dominant. By and large. large. By, by and large, large dominant. Yeah. We could probably tic-tac-y this whole thing and dissect it. I don't think it's relevant. Yeah. Because they're both good for different reasons. Yeah. The only anecdotal thing that I'll say there is, is um, my hamstrings have gotten sore from squats. Never. Now, no. granted, that's just n equals one. Sure. Um, so you just have weak hamstrings. Now that <laughs> very well could be the case. <laughs> but um, but yeah yeah you're absolutely right in the sense that predominantly yeah s- squat is a lot more quads than than what a lot of people maybe kind of assume. Well, and even uh, you know. For the sake of this podcast, we can say that the squat is a predominantly quad exercise. We can say the deadlift is predominantly hamstrings, glutes, maybe low back. It's also a very reductionist to me, reductionist viewpoint on exercise. Like calling the squat a quad exercise, or calling the deadlift a hamstring or glute exercise, seems reductionist. They're both highly loadable, which means that it's a systemic uh, loadable exercise. It's not like when I, when you or me or whoever racks a heavy barbell, whether it's on your back or front rack position, it's not like my quads are taking 100% of the brunt of that weight. Yeah, my mm. quads are working, but I mean, a lot of muscle mass 
is working simultaneously. And we've talked about this off air, but I think when we talked about it in the squat episode, my favorite ab exercise is a front squat. Sure. Now, most people who know what a front squat is and know what ab exercises look like would be like, I don't get it. Like, how would you call that an ab, ab exercise? And it's literally because you have to brace so hard in your trunk to support that bar that I think calling it a quad dominant exercise does it injustice. Sure. It's a total body movement. Yeah, absolutely. And same with the deadlift. I would call it a total body movement. 100%. Yeah. And, you know, in the same way that there's a difference between a low bar, wide stance back squat versus a goblet squat or an overhead squat or a barbell racked front squat. There's many different examples of, of deadlifts. You know, every deadlift variation is going to have a slightly different effect, but the, the pattern remains, remains true, which is how are you able to hinge your hip and extend your hip in order to lift whatever weight you're lifting? Whether that's a barbell, kettlebell, sandbag, anything else you might be well, deadlifting. No, isn't it? Is it true, or did I hear this, or am I making this up that the deadlift gets its name from Roman soldiers having to lift dead bodies off the battlefield? I've heard the same. I've heard it. I don't. I don't know if I. I don't know for sure. Because I doubt Romans were like, "Hey, you know, it'd be great for specificity. What if there was like a bar with weights so we could practice picking up our dead bros?" You know, so like. Well, so there's that. There's also the theory that it comes from the dead stop lift. Okay. This would be an interesting... Maybe off we can come back on another episode and do a little research into why it's called the deadlift and then... Sure. Well, I have, a, I have a client who calls it the living lift. You've told me about this. Why? Yeah. Let's, just say we don't, let's just say we don't want to bring death any more into the gym than what we have to sure <laughs> but going back to your other point like the dead stop live and the barbell stays on starts on the ground it's not moving it's just potential energy and then we turn it into kinetic energy and then return it back so yeah okay i kind of like the idea of the dead stop lift right right so yeah so without you know without splitting hairs of course we're talking about the deadlift as a lift that falls under the hip hinge family. So your hip hinge could be deadlift, could be kettlebell swing, could be broad jump, could be some sort of... Single leg, Romanian deadlift, bilateral Romanian deadlift. I always think of it like... um, I don't know if you... I don't watch baseball, but when I played baseball... They always had this sort of like ready position. And they actually, I'm glad I brought this up because I'll ask clients when they're learning to deadlift. I'm like, did you ever play baseball or softball? Or it doesn't matter if they did or didn't. But I'll be like, all right, here's how we're going to start. Bend over and put your hands on your knees. You know that sort of athletic position, like hands on the knees? Hands on your knees, hands on your knees. Sure. Cha-cha, real smooth. Yeah, that one. Actually, yeah, kind of. Yeah, you know, cha-cha. This, with, you know the thing? With the, cha-cha real smooth. Is that that? Is that the, the dance move? Hands this, on your knees. This, hands on your knees. Like yeah. You've That's been, a hinge pattern. You've been to a wedding reception. I've been to a lot of wedding, wedding receptions. So, yes. I've been to more wedding re- I've danced to more wedding receptions than I've played baseball games. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so, basically, if you want to <laughs> just hunch over and put your hands on your kneecaps. That's sort of a hip hinge right there. Now, all I have to do from there is you put a bar on your hands, put a kettlebell on your hands, or whatever. So, but yeah, I'll literally just be like, put your hands on your knees. That's a hip hinge. You should sing it like the cha-cha slide, though. I'm not going to sing it like the cha-cha slide. I haven't had enough to drink. Maybe later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, shortstop position. Right. Yep. Thank you. Yep, exactly. So, so the principles of the, the deadlift. Hinging the hips back bending the knees enough to allow the hips to shoot back and as far as what you need to achieve whatever depth you need 
to grab a hold of the barbell or kettlebell sandbag or whatever else in question. So a lot of people get a little tripped up with like, how much should I bend my knees? That's I run into that a lot of times. Like, like a lot of times I think people are people. I think from what I've seen, keep their knees far too straight. And they're like, oh, if I bend my knees, then I'm squatting. Well, it's like, well, not exactly, because we need to bend the knees enough to allow to allow the hips to travel back and to allow depth of the hip and the, and the torso to reach whatever it is you're grabbing. So, Otherwise, you're just doing a Tweety Bird. Right. And also, folds. like a locked knee RDL, that hurts. I can't move very far at all. Yeah. I'm like a tin man. If I lock my knees and try to do a hip hinge, I'm like, I can't go anywhere. Right. <laughs> Which kind of begs the question, is it even a hip hinge if you don't bend your knees? I, I suppose the difference between like a hinge and like a fold. Are you one of those people that does this as um, your setup? Sometimes. I've never understood that. Sometimes. Now, the people listening don't know what I just did, but Zach knows what I you just chop, did. You chopped your hips. You chopped my hips. I've never understood that physical cue. For somebody who knows how to hip hinge, I've never understood the, the hip chop. It's like, bro, you've done this a thousand times. You don't need to, like, chop your hips to, like, get in the right position. Like, just do the thing. It's part of some people's setup. In fairness, I play baseball. And of all sports, and I don't know why, baseball is full of silly rituals. So I kind of get it. Because I would do very silly rituals to warm up for batting. And if I didn't do my ritual exactly like I wanted to, I would restart and reset. Yeah. So I will give you the hip chop. But every time I see it, I'm like, bro, just, just deadlift. You've done this a million times. Like we don't need to like make this a whole like theatrical scene. Just just grab the bar and go. Oh well, if you want to talk about drama queens, the hip chop is is nothing compared to some people's deadlift. Oh, like setup pre pre show Uh-oh, setup. I would never. That's why I couldn't go to like a powerlifting competition. I'd be like, dude, just do the thing. Oh, Andy's eyes would roll out of my head, out of his head, if he went to a powerlifting competition. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's oh, it's just part of some people set up, and um, yeah, I think there is, you know, if someone's conscientious about it, it does kind of remind you to have X amount of hip bend, X amount of knee bend, to kind of like pre-prime the the hamstrings. Well, in, in sidebar. This is part of the reason why I'm going to justify my approach to fitness where we work on deadlifts almost nonstop. Same with squats. Like there, I call We've talked about this in the podcast before. There are certain like staple exercises, and I, I call them anchoring exercises, that we don't ever stop training to some degree, in part because I want that repetition, that practice, where you could go anywhere in the world and be like, I know how to deadlift, I know how to, like, I know what I'm doing. So, there doesn't need to be this, like, sort of ritualistic setup. It's like, just grab the bar, get set. You know how to do this. We've done this a thousand times. Just do the thing. So, but anyway, going back to to counter-argue, you said a lot of people don't like to bend their knees. I find the opposite. I Mm. find most people want to bend their knees a lot Mm. and turn it into a squat. And so, this is going to sound counterintuitive, and I think you'll agree with me. This is where I think more weight is a good teaching tool. Certainly can be. Well, and here's why. Two reasons. The first is people bend their knees too much, so they make a squatty hinge. But as soon as they go to pick up the bar, their hips will shoot up first and settle into that hinge position first, and then the bar moves off the ground. So they know where they're supposed to be. They feel their hamstrings and glutes and everything engage. And you'll see their hips sort of shoot out of that squat position, sort of lock into that hinge, and then they'll stand up with it. Yeah. And light weight allows you to sort of fake it. Like right. light deadlifts, you can kind of do whatever you want, and there's no real risk. But adding plates, all of a sudden, 
you have to find that leverage in the correct position. And if you get the weight, yeah, they're real loud. How dare they? I'm just going to take this glass and throw it over. How just grenade it. They? Don't they know this is a podcast studio? Right. So, but anyway, that's why I think added weight is an advantage because it forces people to sort of find that leverage and forces them into that position. And then the other, and I'm sure you've seen this, where people stand up with their deadlift and they sort of do this like arm bend thing, almost mm. like, a, like a half upright upright row. Right. It means the weight. If you can, if you can sort of upright row your barbell deadlift, is way too light. Yeah, yeah. So it's funny. People want to move more stuff for no good reason. So yeah, there there is this funny funny like reflex when someone stands up with a weight they want to like bring it up they want to curl it they want to shrug it they want to high pull it or whatever and so so it is funny simultaneously training like hip extension but also straight arms hmm. that seems a little counterintuitive for people when they first start i just um like pretend your arms are chains yeah just let it hang just hang it and again, I think like added load helps that because you can't fake it. You can't sort of upright row it. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, adding weight also kind of gives you the feedback to where, you know, for me, when we're experimenting with different deadlift. Oh, little spider. I saw him. I was just going to leave him alone. Little spider. There we go. Um where if someone deadlifts and they feel it a lot in their lower back, hmm. maybe their hips are a little too high. Or I really feel it in the knees and the quads. Maybe hips your are too low. hips are too low. Hmm. So the goal, all else being equal, if you can deadlift and you really feel it in your hamstrings and you really feel it in your glutes and you don't necessarily feel it too much in your back or your knees or quads, like to me, that's that's a sweet spot. I would agree. The only reason that you know, the low back is, and I'll tell my clients this: the low back is engaging. That's a good like you want your spine right. to stay straight. So you want those erectors to be fired up. And so if you've never deadlifted before, or if you're relatively new, you should feel it in your back some because your back is working. And yeah. so most people get real anxious about it, and I'm like, look, you're gonna be fine back looks straight now if there's some rounding or some stuff going on there that i don't like then and we can maybe talk about like um uh, uh some mitigation techniques mm-hmm. um but for the most part if there's some rounding oh, i might change things up but you should feel your low back some now with practice like a lot of practice and a lot of added weight and so on and so forth i would hope you'd feel it mostly in glutes and hamstrings and maybe a little bit of low back um but yeah, early on, a, like a low back sensation is normal. Yes, yes. So I should caveat that. It's normal. Um, and I guess I should say there's probably like a sweet spot weight to where the weight is heavy enough, but not too heavy to where, you know, it's, it's kind of almost like a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you can feel your back, but like if we can really hone in on those hamstrings, because that's, that's and, and glutes. Because these are the muscles that people traditionally have the hardest time tapping into. And these are my favorite things. So if we can butt stuff. So if we can, <laughs> if we can develop a strong mind-muscle connection to the posterior chain of the lower body as early as possible, that's that's definitely going to serve us. Now I would also say something that'll help straighten the back um, and contribute to a stronger deadlift is really bringing the lats into play. Mm-hmm. So almost over squeezing the lats to kind of, let's say, almost quote unquote, drown out low back noise. Right. Well, and two, by doing so, by engaging the lats, you're pulling the bar closer to you. So it's a safer lift because the center of mass of that bar and your body are staying tighter together. Otherwise, if you let that bar drift away from you, I was, I was, nobody could see this, but I always do like, this looks like almost like a crane. 
if you live in Nashville, you see a thousand of them. Like a crane, if the bar is out here at the tip of the crane, it's going to put a lot more stress on your lower back. But if you keep the bar closer to your center of mass, that's a lot easier to leverage with less risk. So keeping the bar tight to the body, which is what the lats help do, will allow you to leverage more weight at a less risky position. Yep. What do you do to, what are your cues for that? I'm so glad you asked. So in the workshops that we've been doing lately, um, you know, we'll go over the the basics of stance and grip, setup and that whole thing. But before we actually lift, what we do is we have people set up and we will uh, loop a resistance band around the center of the bar and have a partner pull the bar away, the from, bar them. away from them. So that so that the lifter essentially does a straight arm pull down against the barbell. Right. To literally pull the bar into their shins. shins. Yeah. You know? So that's that's probably the most powerful idea. I agree. You just tell people to you know, I say this all the time, protect the armpits. Mm-hmm. If you flex the tricep and the lat, it's what I call like the super muscle. I should use alliteration and call it the mega muscle. <laughs> but if you're simultaneously really flexing the tricep and really flexing the lat, pulling that armpit down, you're you're accomplishing you're accomplishing exactly. Oh, I just got a cramp in my lats doing that, trying to flex for a podcast. You can't even that, see me. That's from all that water we drank this weekend. Yeah, all that water. <laughs> Needs need some electrolytes. Um, yeah, so tight tricep, tight lat, that will simultaneously help the back stability. And of course, if your tricep is totally flexed, you're not going to have the tendency or the reflex to flex your bicep. Right. I was going to say, I be, like that cue. You know, because you might you might pop a bicep tendon if you're someone who's deadlifting a lot of weight and maybe. Buddy. Not. Buddy, you should have been flexing your triceps harder. No, well, I mean, I showed up at the gym on Saturday. I ripped barbell deadlift the first time I've done in six months, 185 after a number of warm up sets, 20 times. Yeah, now relative to my normal strength and abilities, it's not all that impressive. But the fact that I haven't picked up a bar off the ground in six months, that's, that's really pretty good. fucking good. That's really good. Yeah, so I was pretty proud of myself. As well you should be. So, well, we've talked about this before, like, with, between your injury and mine, there is some value. Typically, I don't like doing this. I've done this before, and I don't like doing this, either personally or with my clients. Regressing their weight way back so that we can work on the fundamental technique stuff. I don't like doing that, but sometimes it we have to be like, all right, like we got a little bit of ego going on here. Let, let's let's regress it back to some fundamentals at lighter weights and then rebuild from the bottom up. The sure. advantage of your injury and my injury is that like these things that we're talking about, some of these things we take for granted because we've done it a thousand times. Now we're having to like really dial it in and be very conscious of. How much weight's on the bar? How do I feel about it? What's my stance? What's my grip? You know, how many am I going to do? What's the intensity level? What's my tolerance for this exercise? So, in a weird way, I kind of like it because we're having to regress to like all, like start from the bottom and re, like relearn these technique points that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, in my case with my injury, obviously being a lower limb injury, I'm really having to focus on keeping even amounts of weights, even balance of my weight from foot to foot, mm-hmm. making sure I'm, as best I can, dorsiflexing to the same angle from the, from the ankle, um, bending the knees to the same relative degree, just so that I'm not, just so that I'm not stiff-legging with my injured side. Right. Yeah. And there's there's definitely a tendency to do that. So, but that's also the advantage of, of uh, you know starting from the bottom, relearning technique. You could probably, if you wanted to, because the intensity is so low, 
and when I say intensity, I mean like the relative load is so low. You could probably deadlift three times a week if you wanted to. Oh sure. And sure. and just re rework all these technique points again because your strength is probably still pretty up there, but we're reintroducing load to an injured limb. So deadlifting three times a week is probably not going to bust you up too bad. I don't know. It depends on your training split and what your right. tolerance and so on and so forth. Right. But that, again, it goes, you know, going back to the training thing, unless you're seriously training, and by seriously training, I mean pretty heavy loads four, five, six days a week, you could probably, if you work out twice a week, you could probably deadlift twice a week. Squat twice a week, press yeah. twice a week. Yeah, for sure. Like, again, it depends on your training age and your tolerance and, and really just load management and stress management at that point. But there's no reason why we can't hit these, you know, big lifts multiple times a week, if, especially if you're only training a couple times a week. Now, once you get to five, six days a week, we'll, we'll pair it out. But again, going back to you and your injury recovery and me and my injury recovery, these deadlifts are not so intense that we need days off. We could probably work some variation, some kind, over and over and over again, which leads to probably the next part of this discussion about the de- dissecting the deadlift, so deadlift variations or accessories or other hin- like hip hinge exercises that we enjoy doing and the pros and cons or whatever. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, the two big deadlift variations from the powerlifting tradition are sumo deadlift mm. and conventional deadlift. I don't think I'll ever sumo again. <laughs> I don't blame you. Yeah. Um, so it, sumo it didn't go very well for me. Sumo being a relatively wider foot stance with your hands inside of your legs. Right. And that's the stance that you take with uh, kettlebells mm-hmm. because the handle is in one place. Right. And yeah. the bell is swinging between your knees, uh, so you yeah, got to create yeah. some space there. So for those of you who kettlebell swing, that's like a the swing is like a sumo hip hinge position. Right. Uh, conventional is when your feet are relatively narrow and your hands are outside of your legs. Right. So. Me personally, I have a more conventional, I'm sorry, a more narrow conventional stance than most. I oftentimes like to put my heels together. I've seen that. Or have them about, you know, two inches apart. Huh. I'll kind of play around with that, you know, just kind of depending on how I feel. No, when you say two inches apart, I've noticed that your toes, or the front part of your foot, is a little wider than that. You're almost like a wedge. Right, right. Yeah, so the toes... The toes are kind of angling out. Right. So it's yeah. a very narrow stance, but a toe angle. Right. Right. So I encourage all my clients to experiment with both width and angle. Because they can be independent. You know? So yeah, figure out figure out what works for you. But yeah, that what I call like duck stance, like heels together, toes out. The first time I tried that, I was able to find my hamstrings and my glutes in a very consistent and powerful way. Huh. Yeah. What's your heaviest pull? 445. Okay. That's good. My heaviest pull all time is 405. And now after a bicep tear, I imagine it'll be years before I can... Yeah. Yeah, I say years. Between one and two years post-op that I'll ever get close to that again. Yeah, sure. And even then, I'm, I'll probably go trap bar. Sure. So, you know, we've talked about unconventional tools, and I think, if, if I remember correctly, in the Unconventional Tools podcast, you and I both picked the trap bar deadlift as our favorite hinge, right? Maybe. Maybe. I know I did. You might have gone kettlebell swing. I probably went swing. You probably went kettlebell swing. Or maybe kettlebell deadlifts. Just because the center of mass is directly under your handle. Right. Yeah. Um, to expand on that, the kettlebell swing would be a ballistic, I call it a ballistic, fast-paced, I would almost call it like a plyometric deadlift, if, if you will. That's probably not the right word, but you get what I'm trying to say. It's a very, it's a fast, 
powerful deadlift. Yeah. Well, I would I would just to split hairs call it a fast powerful hip hinge because there's no there's no dead stop to it. Okay. Apart from pulling it off the floor. Fair enough. You know. Okay. Yeah. So so yeah, so you have conventional and sumo deadlifts which broadly categorize your foot and arm position. Um, you've also got uh, snatch grip deadlift, where your arms are super wide. Mm-hmm. And basically what that does, if you think about the farther out your hands go, the longer range of motion you have when you're picking your weight up off the floor. So, snatch grip deadlift is one way to elongate the range of motion. Uh, you can also do a deficit deadlift where you're standing on an elevated surface, right? And the bar is on a lower. What's well, on the ground? Surface. What's on yeah. the ground, and you're on an elevated surface, so you have to pull a longer range of motion. Unless you dig a hole. <laughs> Unless you dig two holes. But why? Anyway. They used to do that back in the day. The old time strongman. So they say. So if you dug a hole and stood in it, that'd be like a rack pull. No, no, no. They would do that too. But I'm saying two holes for the for the plates. Oh, 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 oh. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now I get it. I thought you meant like where you were standing. I was like, I don't, I don't get it. It's a rack pull. So you have deficit pulls, and then yes, you also have rack pulls where you can pull a weight either um, where the plates themselves are elevated or where you're deadlifting off of a rack where the bar itself is resting on on safeties. So and they each have slightly different feels to them. I would call the first one a block pull. So the the weights are blocked up off the ground, which shortens the range of motion. Now going back to like coaching the deadlift, if I do see a little bit of rounding in the low back or, or difficulty with the hip hinge, I'll start with blocks to shorten the range of motion so people can get the feel for a deadlift. I'll block it up and allow them to be successful to feel what it's supposed to feel like and then over time remove the blocks. So I actually I use block pulls probably more often than anything else. Aside from straight deadlifts or trap bar deadlifts, I'll go block pulls almost not, not all the time, but probably once or twice a week depending on who I'm working with. Yeah, um, and again, it's just to teach the motion at a at a shortened range of motion, so that you have less risk of rounding the back, or you know, if there's a if there's a biomechanics like just not really getting it kind of vibe, I'll block it up just to see what happens. So I do really like block pulls. Yeah, for sure. Um, as far as deficit pulls, though, I can do them, but I don't know. I haven't really worked with anybody who was so strong that they needed a deficit pull. And actually, I would, I, would, I would go one further. How often do you work with anybody whose lockout is the weak point? Initial pull versus lockout. How many people do you have that have trouble with the lockout? None of my clients have trouble with anything, Andy. Okay. That's what you have to understand. Are you pushing them hard enough? That's what you have to understand. <laughs> no. Um, so maybe I'm a little um, maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree but so a deficit deadlift would help the initial pull off the floor strength I would argue that yeah and your rack pull would theoretically help the lockout strength in part because the shortened range motion and typically stronger uh, biomechanics allow for greater overload yeah. in other words Everybody's deadlift is, let's say your your deadlift is X, your rack pull could probably be one and a half or two X, right? Like your rack pull is typically pretty much heavier than what you could pull off the floor. Yeah, you know, it kind of depends. My, my viewpoint is anchored in a lot of like traditional power lifting type, type training. And ironically enough, what you find with a lot of power lifters is sometimes their strength off the floor is stronger, is greater than a rack pull, simply because of the specificity. 
That's wild to me. Yeah. Now, granted, we're talking about we're talking about the upper echelon, of, the upper yeah. echelons, and and you also got to think, well, how much of that is like the consequence of the raw amount of weight versus just the neurological underpinnings of what's going on with someone's technique, right? Setting up in a certain position versus another position. So if somebody's mm-hmm. used to wedging in a certain position, and then you mess with that starting position. It can, it can throw people off. But my thing is, is uh, over the course of time, if someone's, you know, very, is a serious powerlifting uh, client or, you know, really wants to train the deadlift from all angles, we do, we do both. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like, look, specifically for those athletes, for my people, a deadlift variation that looks good feels good for them and then maybe a, another like a single leg hinge variation or a kettlebell swing but we don't really get much in the weeds of like um, specific deadlift um, accessory movements sure outside of what I just said like those are accessories to the actual deadlift but I don't I don't mess around that much with block pulls or rack pulls with my people it's just most of them just want to look good feel good so we find a, a, a deadlift variation off the floor or blocked that looks good, and we just rock that. Yeah. And typically, over the last few years, and we've talked about this before, that's the trap bar for me and my clients. I was going to say, so you're, you're obviously a big trap bar guy. I am a big trap bar guy. What do you say to the critics, the critics of the trap bar deadlift? Who criticizes them? There's nothing to criticize. <laughs> What's the criticism? The criticism to my my understanding is a lot of coaches will say it's not a pure hip hinge, it's just a squat with your hands down. Well, I'd tell them that they're wrong, because you mm. can just look at it and be like, it's not a squat. Now, it might not be a pure deadlift by their standards, but I'm not really sure what a pure deadlift looks like, even with a bar. I know what a deadlift looks like, but I don't know what a pure unadulterated 100% nailed it deadlift is supposed to look like so there's that we're assuming and that's, this is another discussion we're assuming there's an exact right way of doing things and I don't believe that there is in any fitness I don't I think there's some nuance given for any exercise so there's that that's a different discussion the other is who, who gives a shit and here's why I have found the trap bar deadlift to be one of the easiest exercises for people to to grasp the concept of. It's pretty intuitive. You bend over, you grab handles, you stand up, and then you put it back down again. That sounds like a deadlift. The weight is stopped, it's on the floor, you're hinging to grab it, you're standing up with it. Now the bar might look different, but we're not power lifters, so it doesn't matter. The only time it matters what tool you're using is if you're working like, or, or competing on a powerlifting platform. None of my people are, so who gives a shit? The other part of that is, most of my people's trap bar deadlift is much stronger than their barbell deadlift. Now, given the context of my general fitness people, if I have a tool that allows a client to leverage more weight more times, that means I'm doing more good for their musculoskeletal system, it's hard to beat that. If I can get you stronger and do more reps and more volume with a particular lift, that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. We're talking about leverages here. So I'm just finding the right tool that allows you to leverage the most weight the most amount of times, which is gonna do the most good for your muscle mass and burn more calories. I don't see what the problem is here. Unless you're a barbell deadlift purist or a powerlifting meathead, I don't see the problem. Lift bigger weights means you are a bigger, better athlete, and I don't really understand why the trap bar is a problem in this scenario. Mm. So those purists or whoever, I'll tag them in the comments. Shove it. That's what they, I'm gonna tell them. Shove it. I'll tag them. I'll, I, tag them I will die on that hill. I will defend the trap bar deadlift because I do believe it's a better lift for general population clients. Now again, if you're a powerlifter and competing, specificity is king. And you're not allowed to lift with the trap bar on the platform, so sorry. We're just maybe as an accessory tool, 
but we are not going to spend an inordinate amount of time on the trap bar unless it's purely, even then, purely unadulterated total strength that we would hope would translate to the barbell. But, I mean, for my people who are trying to get stronger and build more muscle and burn more calories and lose some fat, the trap bar is really hard to beat. I don't give a shit if there's some purist out there that's like, it's not a real deadlift. I'll be like, I don't know what... Fuck it, we'll call it a trap bar deadlift then. With the, the asterisks between about the trap bar. I'll die defending that one. There's not many things that I'm like, oh, I die on a hill. The trap bar deadlift is one that I would probably die on that hill. I just think those other guys are wrong. I'm just seeing how long I can prolong the silence. Um, I I trust the a trap bar in the hands of a capable coach like yourself. I think most people squat their their trap bar. I think I think without without a without a nuanced uh, coach or without you know a, a nuanced eye or or a particular. Um, Intention, I think most people that I've just seen just growing out in the gym just squatted, and I'm not even saying that that's a I'm not saying that's a bad thing. By by any means, I'm uh, I'm giving the devil his due. I'm playing devil's advocate, if you will. So and saying that most people who just pick up a pick up a trap bar, they squat it. So then, my I would ask this question then. And I'm not even saying that that's a bad thing either. Do you believe that the squat and the deadlift are distinct and incompatible movements? Or do you think that every single movement that we do is a spectrum between squat on one end of the spectrum and deadlift on the other end? I'm glad you brought that up. Because when we, when we cycle this all the way back, to, to alluding back to our previous conversation about the squat and how we need a certain amount of uh, knee bend, but not too much knee bend to facilitate the hip hinge. Right. There, right there, we're talking about a Venn diagram. So there's some, there's some crossover. Of knee, really a Venn diagram of Ankle, knee, hip, flexion and extension. The and and there's obviously there's obviously a big overlap. I mean, hey, to be fair, a lot of power lifters sumo deadlift is more of a squat. Well the irony about that too is that I don't know too many people who are regular lifters whose squat is that much stronger than their deadlift. Well and, and to that point if you load the trap bar enough, your body is forced into a hip hinge. We've talked about this before, right? like when mm. we're coaching it. If it's too light, people can squat it or, or upright row it. I would argue that with the trap bar appropriately loaded, you can't squat it. It just isn't compatible. Like you're not able to gain leverage over a certain amount of weight. Your body will, will literally force you into a hinge pattern to gain leverage. Yeah. I would argue. Well, that's also where let's point out one of the big elephants in the room that we really haven't addressed, which is a deadlift and a hip hinge may not always be the same thing. Maybe the trap bar deadlift is a deadlift, but maybe it's not a pure hip hinge. Okay. And again, like, I think that satisfies all parties. I think I think you're right, and and I think at the end of the day, like, and and that's the thing is, as coaches, we would make the same arguments that we've made here. Like, hey, if you're going to step on a platform and compete in powerlifting, trap bar deadlift's not the right tool. If you just want to build an ass load of muscle mass in your ass and hamstrings, and low back, the trap bar might be your tool. It might not be. It, we'll just, we'll play around with different tools to get the job done. But really, the only time that a barbell deadlift is the king, it has to be, would be on the platform. But otherwise, it's another tool and an arsenal of tools to get really jacked. Speaking of an arsenal of tools, you've got all the big sandbags. Yep. Do you do, like, sandbag deadlifts? I do, and I love them. 
I haven't because of the bicep. I haven't in a while. And I would tell, I've told this story before. I don't know if on air, but one of my favorite workouts I ever did was picking up a 200 pound sandbag off the street. I would say the street because it's in my street outside my house. Picked it up, walked it as far as I could and dropped it. And then I did 10 squat jumps. So it was a hinge and a squat and a carry. Total body workout. Picked it up, walked it as far as I could, dumped it on the ground, 10 squat jumps when I had my breath, grabbed that sandbag, sucked it to my chest. So that is, now here's the funny thing about the sandbag deadlift, if we're gonna call it that. It's a rounded back deadlift. If you were to watch somebody from a side profile, you'd be like, oh my God, they're back. I think the nature of the exercise demands that you round your back to get that. It's kind of like, have you ever seen an Atlas stone pickup? Same thing. Those backs are rounded, trying to get that Atlas stone to their body so that they can leverage and stand up with it. Right. I'm a big fan of sandbag. I call them, we call them lap to stand because you lap it and then stand with it. Andy's star client is currently on television. Is he really? Yes. Gary. I'm, I'm pointing, pointing him out to you. There he is. Look at that guy. Um, but anyway, I, I love the sandbag. We'll call it a day. Dude, I'm going to his website right now. You should. Oh, I'm, try, I'm trying to Don't do the opposite. Don't sell without the intel. I'm trying to do the opposite. I'm trying to buy. I'm going to holler at him tell him he's on this podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> tell him we're looking for sponsors. Yeah. I, actually, if anything, I think the sandbag, deadlift, or lap to stand is probably one of the more, and I hate to use the word, like functional things that you can do. Because you're quite literally picking dead weight off the floor, like off the floor floor. Not like a deadlift where the bar is lofted. You're getting something off the floor, like putting your hands underneath it and trying to find leverage. It's one of my favorite exercises. It will crush your soul. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, man. Well, as far as I'm concerned, um, I, th- I think there is a little bit of room for interpretation of a of a deadlift. Could be a pure hip hinge, or it could be a combination hip hinge squat. But you know. These are all things that we're just arbitrarily putting labels on. Right. To I some degree or the other. They're probably on a spec. I would say they're on a spectrum. If, if we had to put the squat and the deadlift on opposite ends of the spectrum, kind of like Love and Hate in Donnie Darko. You saw that movie, right? Uh, okay. The world doesn't exist with just these two emotions. The world doesn't exist with just a pure squat just pure deadlift I, I would consider them a spectrum if we had to say they're on opposite ends of the spectrum and there's a lot of movement variability in between and the trap bar probably lands smack dab in the middle I just wish that we could have the Gary Jules version of Mad World fade in and take us it's out a of this really, episode it's a really good episode or a good song of course it is love that movie I named my neighbor who, I don't know if she died, Grandma Death, because she looked exactly like Grandma Death. Mm. Did I tell you about that? Off air. You haven't, but a part of me knew that that was the case. Yeah, there was a woman that lived a few doors down. I called her, I never saw her in, except once. I called her Grandma Death. She looked exactly like the character, I swear. Somehow a part of me knew that you and Donnie Darko had a, had a kindred connection. Mm. We'll save that for the next time. Okay. We, start, we started this episode with a critique of Dad Rock. Maybe next time we'll talk about our uh, relative experiences with Donnie Darko. Yeah. Well, on that note, we've yammered on about deadlifts for a little while. The only thing I would end on, pers- I have an announcement. So Please. today, well, it doesn't matter. Okay, Lift a Palooza, we talked about it. Yep. Get tickets. I need to do this today. I, I keep forgetting so that but also um, the by the time this episode publishes I will be in my new gym yes so if you are in the West Nashville area around Target Publix Chick-fil-A all that 850 <laughs> Hillwood between a cake place and an ice cream place I'm right in the middle I'm the um, I'm the banana split <laughs> Andy Van Strength and Conditioning is on the map. It is on the map. As of this podcast, public or whatever, publication? Posting? Uh, as of this broadcast. Broadcast. I will be working live in my new gym space. So wow. if you're in the West Nashville area, 850 Hillwood Boulevard, there's a giant sign with my name on it. 
Come check me out. Well, if I haven't said it already, Andy, congratulations. Thank you. You deserve it. You deserve... Uh, yeah, you really deserve to have your name quite literally on the map in the city. So I'm glad that you're making strides to make it happen. That's fine. I will actually be on the map, like Google Maps, actually. Yeah. No, I gotta stop talking mad shit on online. Because people are gonna review me badly. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Maybe not. Okay. But yeah, right. man, su super proud of all your, your hard work and obviously the whole opening process whenever you operate a brick and mortar uh, business is always a headache of some kind. Um, getting things up and off the ground. And you've handled it with grace and aplomb, and I applaud you for that. So I cannot wait to get in my first session at Andy Van Strand and Conditioning. Oh, buddy, thank you. You got it. Well, with that, A to Z, no BS. As always, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.